Well, you're 10 years old, and most of the girls in your class are taller than you. Let's just admit it. All the girls in your class are taller than you. But you love baseball, and you arrive at Little League tryouts. And you realize that at the tryouts, an adult is throwing fast pitch. And that lump just forms in your throat. I can't hit that. Discouragement. You decided you're actually going to open your bank statement and see really where you're at. You look at the debt that you're carrying. And you look at other people on Facebook living up life and say, this is what life is like. And you see your situation. And you say, I guess that life's not for me. Discouragement. You're a job. And you're not trying to play office politics. You're not trying to gossip. You're trying to tame your tongue amongst the language that you see around you. You're trying to hold to Christian sexual ethics. And you live by this standard and people in your office place look at you like, what kind of world are you living in? It just doesn't exist. You're standing outside on a day you thought would never come. The one that you love is being lowered down into the ground. Your world is shattered. You are discouraged. What is the good news? The good news for that 10-year-old at practice, slap on a WWJD bracelet. That'll help you in your hit. In your financial woes, here's a book, Your Best Life Now. Read this. This will help you. How about in your loss that you look at a well-manicured picture of Jesus? Blue-eyed, long hair, one that just will hug you. That will be your encouragement, right? Is that the good news? Maybe part of it is. What is there when discouragement is so great, it shakes you to the core? Well, the book of Revelation has a picture. A picture of Jesus. A picture that we don't often see. That will come to our deepest discouragements. And it's not just something for later, but it's something for now. Let's see, shall we? Let's see this picture in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Please pay attention as we look at God's word together. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book 
and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The word of the Lord. Well, welcome to the book of Revelation this summer. I'm glad you could come and join us on this journey. A book that many think is very weird. Me too, reading it at times. This is weird. Some of us avoid it because we have so much baggage when it comes to reading the book of Revelation. But this, we are saying as a church, is the word of God. And it's here to encourage us. Again, not to confound us, but to help us. And last week, we kind of kicked off the book and gave some, some just basics of how do I go about reading a book like this? What are some steps I can take to help understand it well? And quickly review that right now. One, you have to understand the type of literature it is, the genre. It's apocalyptic literature, which means revelation. It has symbols, very, very pronounced symbols. We say it's prophecy on steroids. And it seems like the best way to understand the symbols and what they are pointing to is to understand the context of who John is writing to and God is speaking to. People that are under Roman oppression in the Roman Empire. People that understand the Old Testament. And when we start to understand their context and understand the Old Testament and all the Old Testament symbols that are used in Revelation, we can start to unpack what does this book mean? That's one. Two, we saw in verse three, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. This book is for our benefit. It's not to confuse us. It's not for us to look at the newspaper and dissect all current events we possibly can and think about how these current events fit into Revelation. Instead, this could actually speak to us in a way just greater than just the current events, but life and history in total. So it is for our benefit, number two. Three, lastly, this book shows us a glorious picture of the triune God. Many times we get lost in the trees, 
and we miss the forest seeing for what it really is. This is a picture of how mighty our God is and how great he is and how he has worked throughout history and is working to the end of history for his glory. So the genre for our benefit, not to confuse us. And thirdly, to see Christ and to see God and the Holy Spirit. Well, let's look at this, these verses today. John again introduces, I, John, your brother, he is the one writing this. It's probably most likely the beloved disciple that has been exiled 40 miles west onto an island of Patmos off the coast of what is modern day Turkey. And he is writing to seven churches that are very close to where he's located in Western Asia Minor, Western modern day Turkey. Now, when he says he writes to seven churches, that's probably not the exhaustive list of all the churches in Asia Minor. There's probably many more than that. But again, we've seen the number seven is the idea of completion. So again, this letter probably was circled among these seven churches, but it is for the church at large. The church existed then, the church through history, and us today. And you see the first things that he says is, I am a partner with you in this. I am with you in what you are experiencing. And he talks about three ways he is with them. One is in tribulation. John is probably writing anywhere from 40 to 70 years after Christ's resurrection. And there's debate about how much actual persecution is happening at this time. I tend to agree that the persecution has not reached its heights yet. There's probably exiles, as John has experienced, arrests, rejection in society. But the time is coming, and not in the too distant future, where the church will be under major attack. Beheadings, those stories of feeding to the lions, Christians being drawn and quartered. John is preparing and God is preparing the church for major persecution. And this is the tribulation that he's saying we're experiencing and going to experience. Second, he says, you're partnering with me in the kingdom. It's kind of hard to see the kingdom language is, you know, we kind of don't understand it a lot in our day, but it's very comical to say to Christians, you're part of a kingdom. It, it's kind of maybe even a joke for some of these. Really? We as Christians are a part of a kingdom? See, the kingdom that these seven churches would have seen is the kingdom of Rome. And this was the highlight, the, the, the kind of the dawning, the, the majesty of the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, or it's called, the peace of Rome. It's the heyday of Roman authority. It's a vast empire where Caesar is called Lord. And this is a real tangible kingdom, right, for these people. And here, John is saying, no, you belong to the true kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus, where he is Lord. Now, for a guy that's in exile, for being socially disruptive, to say these kind of things, 
would have been just hard for people maybe to hear because what they see is Rome is in power. They are in control. So he says, tribulation, a kingdom, I partner with you, and also patient endurance. It would have been discouraging to talk about this kingdom with the power of Rome in the midst of these places. You have to understand in these cities of Asia Minor, these cities would have celebrations where they would worship Caesar. They would call him Lord. And those that contributed to the Roman Pax Romana, that contributed to this empire, they were the ones that would benefit from society. They are the ones that would be invited to the parties. They are the ones that got certain positions. They are the ones that if they abided by this cult of Rome, they would be the ones that are accepted in the culture. And John, as he writes later, as we'll see in chapter 2 and 3, he's writing to a lot of people in these churches that are compromising the gospel. They're compromising because they want these benefits. And John is wondering, are you patiently enduring? What side are you really on? It makes sense as as we go through the book of Revelation and these symbols become more and more vivid. That you would think of Rome as a beast. (laughs) Something that is incredibly powerful that has many horns and eyes that can devour. It is a beast that is so powerful. And what Revelation is doing and what God is trying to communicate to his church is he's trying to unmask what is truly happening. He's trying to show the people that there is a kingdom that is everlasting, that is above this Pax Romana, that is above all of these things. There is a battle happening. And he's saying there is an underbelly to Roman culture and society. There's oppression. There's violence. There's prostitution. There's persecution. It's a society that goes against and does not worship the true God. I wonder, is there a a Pax Appletonia? Is there the peace of Appleton? Right, we have visitors here today. Welcome to paradise. Welcome to the promised land, Wisconsin. Glad you're here. Welcome to the greatest place to raise kids that's safe and secure. This is the amazing community that's benevolent, that we're kind, we're nice. This is where you should move to. Right? And that really is like the, the piece of Appleton, right? Put together families, kids that have AP classes, that are part of club sports. We have our recreation, we have our cabins that we flee to in the summer. We have our blinds that we shoot things in the fall. We have our boats that we love to take out. Don't rock that boat, please. 
Pun intended. Don't go against the pox apoptonia. What if we said as the church in Appleton, we said true meaning, true happiness, true contentment, the true kingdom is when you follow Christ alone in his kingdom. Would that rock the boat? Does Appleton have an underbelly? That if you can't face the pressure of having a family that looks really pristine and nice and good, where do you go? We are a city that drinks and drinks and drinks to numb our pain. We're a city that deals with much domestic abuse, depression, anxiety. Is there actually a cosmic battle happening for our souls? Or are we just going to play nice? Are we just going to look good? We can just have our summer cabins and our families, but behind it, what is there? So good. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, here comes God. Here comes the Lord to just take away the curtain and to show what is really happening in this empire and in this place. A trumpet is fitting, is it not? That's what was blown when God comes down to Moses on Mount Sinai. That is what was blown when there's a battle to show God's power to Joshua. That is what's blown at the year of Jubilee to forgive all debts for 50 years. And Revelation, here is heaven coming down. Coming down to say there's a battle in your discouragement. Here is heaven come down, a trumpet being blown to show to the world. Guess what? Let's unmask the rhetoric of Rome and show what is truly happening. And if you read Revelation, you realize this language is used over and over again. John hears. John sees. John smells. John touches. God is showing himself vividly to his apostle and saying, look and see the battle that is actually happening. And that's my question for you guys this morning. Will you see, will you hear, will you touch, will you see that there is something cosmically happening? There is a transcendent, there is a God that is battling in this world. Well, what does he see? What comes to John? We see, right, the blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus, who looks like Fabio, enters the situation. No. It's a picture of Jesus with eyes flaming, a voice like a roar of many waters, swords coming out of his mouth. I imagine, could you imagine having that picture in the Sunday school class for the kids? 
This is Jesus, right? And this is not what Jesus looks like. These are symbols. It does not show what he looks like, but what he is like. It's a portrait. It's a painting that uses many colors and many textures throughout the Old Testament. It's using language from Ezekiel and Daniel and Judges and Exodus and Isaiah and Zechariah. It's painting this picture of a mighty judge, a mighty king, a mighty priest. I can't go through all the images, so I'll go through the main image. It's the image of the Son of Man. This is an image used by Daniel in the Old Testament. And Jesus used it of himself multiple times in the Gospels. It's fitting that John borrows from Daniel because Daniel too is apocalyptic literature. And Daniel's facing the same kind of things that the church is facing. Israel was, the church is facing the New Testament. They are facing the Old Testament, facing exile under a powerful ruler, Babylon and Persia. And in Daniel 7, he's showing the battle between the kingdom of God and these earthly kingdoms. And he shows two vivid pictures. One of the ancient of days, which is a description of God, a name for God. And two, the son of man. And how the son of man and the ancient of days will come to judge all of the nations. John in, in chapter one is what we call in theological circles and exegetical circles, a midrash. It's basically a commentary on Daniel seven. Here, John is giving a commentary on Daniel seven, but he's doing something in his commentary to explain what's going on in the situation now. One, he's doing this. He's combining the image of the ancient of days and the son of man together. That image of the white hair is the image of the ancient of days. And what he's doing is he's showing that there is a divinity to Christ, that Christ is God himself. If you want to look at the best place to defend the Trinity and show the divinity of Jesus, please look at the book of Revelation. I don't know how you can get out of reading Revelation and not see the Trinity and see how it is three persons in one in the Godhead. And we'll see this over and over again. But there is another picture that is seen of the Son of Man. That the Son of Man in Daniel will come. But here in Revelation, he's saying, I have come. I am here, reigning on my throne as the judge as the king, right here upon the earth, I am reigning now. So we have a picture of the judge and a king, but we have another picture of a priest. Here we have lampstands and we have a long robe and a golden sash. We can imagine one of the priests of Israel in the Old Testament walking in the temple right? Caring for the lampstand, which would stand in the temple, which would have these seven kind of candelabra things around it, seven of them. And the, the priest would take care of making sure the, the wicks were okay, that there was enough oil, that it was okay to be lit 
All these things are being taken care of by the priest in his priestly garb. And here the image is given to us of Jesus in that same way. And he's just not walking in the temple, but he is walking throughout the world and the church. It's not just one lampstand, it's seven showing completion. He is walking among the church, interceding, being with them, caring for them. He is working and he is with them. How much of a greater picture of a priest is this Jesus that isn't just in one location in Jerusalem, but is throughout the world ministering to his church. To hear John, the one that walked with Jesus physically, now said, this Christ that was crucified, he now reigns in heaven. If you think Rome is the power of the world, no, it is not. Christ is in control. He is the king of heaven. He is the son of man. He is the ancient of days. Angels and churches are within his hands. I find sometimes it takes symbolism. It takes these things to pull away the curtain to see what is actually happening. And for me, sometimes the best way to do that, maybe you have this too, is watching movies. You can see maybe a greater value or a greater thing that is happening when you see the symbols in a movie. I'm a science fiction fan. I like the movie Interstellar. I thought it was really well done. And it's one of those times where the curtain was kind of pulled away for me. Specifically in a conversation between two astronauts that are having a fight on a distant planet. One is Dr. Mann, who's played by Matt Damon. And one is Cooper, played by Matthew McConaughey. Awesome, right? right? And Dr. Mann is arguing to Dr. Cooper the most important thing that drives us as humans is our survival, our preservation. That's the most important thing. And we see through the, mo- the movie that Cooper's number one thing that drives humanity, his argument is love is what drives humanity. So you have this kind of symbolism of these two things battling against each other. Kind of naturalism versus transcendence. And Dr. Mann says that ethics and morality and higher law are thrown out for the preservation of humanity. And you see that displayed right there in the movie when he tries to kill Cooper. Say, that's the most important thing, the preservation of humanity. Not these greater laws that say you are valuable because you're made in the image of God. It's a great question, isn't it? It's a great question for ethics. What drives our behavior? Simple naturalism? Our own preservation? Or do we believe in a higher law? That there's transcendence, that there's something cosmic. There is a God that governs the universe, that judges our actions, that created us and made us for a purpose and for a reason. 
Do I do things for my own preservation? Or do I do things for the glory of God? That is the very question for the seven churches, is it not? Will we just do things for our own preservation and give in to the Pax Romana? We will just give in to Rome because they are the ones truly in control. And if we want to be established in society and live the good life, you know what? That's what we see. So that's what we abide by. And that's the battle that they're wrestling with. The thing is, that's not just a battle that we face today. It's a battle throughout humanity. Is there a God? that cares for us and watches over us and judges us? Is there something happening outside of us? Some of you say, Dan, you think too hard, right? I never think about these categories, whether I'm a naturalist or I believe in transcendence. I would never use those words in conversation. Who are you? Right? Well, maybe I'll put the question another way. What is your authority? What is it? Is it you? Or is it the Lord? Do you say, well, I'm really the judge. I know what is right. I'll do with what I want with my body. I'll do with what I want to spend my money, to spend my time. Or is the curtain pulled away? And you see that there is a God that actually watches over you. And it's not your body, but it's his. It's not your money, but it's his. It's not your simple decisions, but it's him wanting to intercede in the choices that you make. This is why I find the most interesting thing about Interstellar. Who do you root for in Interstellar? Do you root for Dr. Mann, who says all there is is our own preservation? Or do you root for Cooper, that says sacrifice and love and value for each life is what the most important thing? You see that in our hearts, whether you're a Christian or not, you know what wins out. See, God has placed in our hearts the idea that we do not live for ourselves, but we live for others. I love, sorry, I just, I love conversations with my friends that are atheists that say, you know, Christianity does evil for the world, right? That's a conversation that they say to me. I said, what is evil? You you don't even believe in evil. There is nothing that discerns what's good and what's bad. But you don't actually believe that. See, God has placed in your heart that there is something that is good and there's something bad. If you actually take away the curtain, you realize that there is something cosmic going on in your life. The question then is, when the curtain is pulled away, what do you say? What do you do? You see what John does? 
I saw him and I fell at his feet, though dead. This is similar of all the great leaders of the Old Testament, Moses and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel. And here, John, when they see God for who he is, they fall to their feet. They don't say, God, I'll do better now. They don't say to God, God, I know it's not that bad, but I got to work on some things. They don't say, oh God, I understand. I might live for myself sometimes. I'm sorry. No, when they see God, they fall on their face to a holy God and say, God, help me. I am dead. Is that what you do when you see God? I encourage you, if you think you're a Christian or maybe you're wrestling with this whole faith thing, Christianity thing, you know what a good gauge and whether you're a Christian or not is, is to say, you know what? I am nothing without him. I am dead. I am not on the throne, but he is. When I truly see what I am, I am lost and I need him. Man, pastor, that sounds really harsh. Well, that's not the end of the gospel. Jesus does not leave us there. He does not leave John there. He says, he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. God, in our discouragement, in our hard places, he says, I have hope for you. And my hope comes in this, that I am the first and the last. That's Isaiah language of God himself. He then says, I am the alpha and the omega. God says that about himself in the first part. These are interchangeable words that God is the first and the last that he is the alpha and the mega, that he is the beginning and the end. These are words that are interchangeably used throughout Revelation. Sometimes they're used to describe God. Sometimes they're used to describe Jesus. But then at the very end in chapter 22, this is what it does. It combines all those three phases, those three phrases that mean the same thing. And it says, Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega the first and the end, the beginning. And guess how many times those phrases are used? Seven times. Christ is saying, I am God who reigns over all things. And what have I done as God? I have come down to earth and I have conquered the greatest discouragement that humanity has. Death. The greatest war and battle that we're facing. I have taken upon myself and I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of these things. I am in control of these things.
It's not just the WWJD bracelet, right? <laughs> it's not a better life now. It's not Fabio Jesus. No, what can our God do in our greatest discouragements? He can intercede for us by conquering death. He is the victor. And here God is showing his victory on a cosmic level down to us. And this book of Revelation, as verse 19 says, John is going to talk throughout this book about the present realities he faces, the realities we face in the church, and also what the end of history will look like. This week, I was with seven pastors. Maybe that's providential, who knows. Six who are throughout the state of Wisconsin and one who ministers in China. And in our conversations, we were talking about what was going on in our ministries and what was going on in our life. Many were talking about the struggles and sins of people in their church that were great. One pastor talked about he's been attacked in his dreams by demons at night. Some talked about family members that were not walking with the Lord. One talked about a man that was drunk that came into the congregation on Sunday morning and started singing a song during testimony time. One talked about his dad who had spent two years in prison for proclaiming the gospel in China. And he was worried with the crackdown that's going on in China now that when he returned back from the States, the same would be his future prison. Heavy, heavy things. And here I am taking these all in. And I am discouraged. And then I realize as I read Revelation that the, what is going on with these pastors going on in these churches, right? There is a battle. There's a battle going on in the church among its pastors and its people. We are the lampstands that are to shine in this world. And there is good news for me and for these pastors and for us, the church. Do not be discouraged because guess what? Here, the ancient of days, here, the son of man, he walks among us in the church. He walks among our discouragement. He walks among our pain. He walks among things that we're facing. And he says, I have won the battle. I am victorious. I have taken the greatest discouragements of this world and I have defeated them. I have taken them upon myself. Don't look just to the future, but look now. Look what I have done. I reign now in heaven. And I am doing battle with you right now on earth. 
Are you discouraged? Do you have these burdens? Cast off long-haired Jesus. Cast off a better life now. And put on the king, the priest, the revelation of apocalypse to us. That Jesus reigns on his throne, the ancient of days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is so hard to see the cosmic battle and what we see is just the natural world. And Lord, we can be discouraged as individuals and in your church. Help us know that we are not alone. That you are waging a war. That you have won. And you are with us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, let's stand and rejoice in the revelation of the Lord.